Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. As the industry shifts more and more into patient centricity, operational challenges arise with ECOA strategy and implementation. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Watson, Director of Consulting, and Rebecca Tomalty, Director of Operations at Thread, about ECOA strategy. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. To bring our listeners up to speed, can you speak to how a patient-centric approach to clinical trials trickles down to ECOAs in a way that our audience should be thinking about? A patient-centered approach to clinical trials really should address the needs of the patient population. And we reflect that in our study designs and particularly the COA strategy in that it needs to measure what matters most to the patient population. As patient reported outcome endpoints are now increasingly being used in labeling claims, specifically around highlighting, say, symptoms and side effects, we need to make sure that we're actually capturing those points when we're defining our COA strategies on going forward. And that's where patient specificity comes into it. And hence, we need to ensure that the patient voice is brought into the entire study design process so that we deliver studies which patients see value in. I want to be part of because as we're asking more information from patients, we've got to entice them into it. They want to be able to be part of the study there and actually so they can actually supply that information there. So patient centricity is really about focusing on the patient and designing a better study environment for them to actually partake in. And from my perspective, I think about things in an operational way. Uh, what is going to be the most streamlined and efficient way to collect the COA data? Uh, really, the more fussy and complicated the process is, the, the more negative that patient experience might be. So we really want to think about how we can set the study up in a way that is going to flow easily and smoothly for the patient. The design of the ECOA should always first consider the user experience, really. Can you expand on what you mean by user experience, particularly for a more patient-centric approach? Sure. You want to think about things like how the questions are going to flow on the screen, what the, the look and appearance is. You know, we have, we have to stay faithful to the original instrument, but... You want to minimize things like scrolling on a screen. You want to ensure that the patient is going to be able to follow and manage through the COA in a way that is not confusing and is very straightforward. What has been the approach to ECOA up to this point, and how might things be changing moving forward? From my perspective, traditionally co-strategies, when we look at them, may not actually be measuring those elements or those data points which are important to patients. We have a tendency to define upfront, and we have to define upfront what our co-strategy is going to be. But without looking at it through the lens of the actual patient there, are we actually measuring things of benefit to the patient? And fundamentally, what I mean by benefits of the patient, that needs to feed through ultimately to something that can support the labeling claims. We need to understand the patient needs and redefine how we look at it and how we're asking patients to respond to the information we're asking to capture. Historically, there's always been a tendency in a lot of areas to do a follow a me too strategy where we will replicate what has been used in the past. And ultimately, if there's been no previous examples, we'll, we may be tempted to actually just cast a very broad net 
on ECOA of what we're going to ask the patients to hopefully to say, if I ask enough questions, I can get a sig- the signal I'm looking for. We could then be making our ECOA strategies less sensitive. And fundamentally, the more questions we ask, we're actually increasing patient burden. So, so it's all about thinking about what we need to be doing when we actually address the patient. So we can actually target our questionnaire strategy and our ECOA strategy to gather those key elements that we need to drive that signal and identify that change. So it seems like patient centricity is impacting ECOA both in the questions asked and in the ways that patients are engaging with ECOAs. The fundamental point is there's a large number of ECOA that are out there. However, those that are actually specific to a specific therapy area or disease state are few and far between. So as such, we try and find matches of ECOA that fit into that. And actually, we need to have some more thought and understanding into that to actually ensure that we actually are and we understand our patient populations and we're actually then aligning the ECOA that we want to ask them to that patient population and their actual challenges or how they are fundamentally progressing with that disease or the treatment, et cetera, associated with that disease. So we we really start thinking about it again there. So we actually can target because the more targeted we are, the more accurate and sensitive the data we are going to see at the end of the process. Rebecca, can you walk us through some of the common pain points that you've come across in operationalizing ECOA strategy? Yeah, uh, designing and configuring the most patient-centric approach really requires more time than ECOA providers are often afforded. I'd say the the biggest pain point has got to be the timeline for implementation. It really takes time for any ECOA provider to build out the best solution possible. And when you add a global component to a trial, the timelines can really start to take off. You know, when you start thinking about translations, especially, very often the ECOA vendor engagement is very far down on the list of trial startup activities, and there's just not enough time for that implementation. Another really important factor that is not given enough forethought to is the licensing. You know, we're dealing with copyrighted material. These COAs have been developed and copyrighted. Authors have an interest in making sure that we are working appropriately with their material. So we have to get licenses. And a timeline can be totally derailed if you're trying to license with an elusive author who's unavailable to execute a contract or reviewing screenshots. The only way to mitigate against that is to begin the process as quickly as possible. So once you know what your COA is, you need to be thinking about licensing it. How soon are you currently brought in versus how soon would you like to be brought in? Often an ECOA provider is being brought in when all other vendors are being secured for a trial, but really at the point where a synopsis has been drafted, even before the protocol is finalized, when you've got a synopsis, that's when you should be thinking about how you're going to implement your ECOA strategy and really be able to give it the thought that it requires. When you're dealing with a global trial and you've got clinical outcome assessments that may not have been previously translated, Uh, and you're dealing with something that's a primary or a secondary endpoint, 
if you need to get involved with linguistic validation, that, that in and of itself could take eight to 10 weeks on top of all of the other localization uh, requirements that you might have. You know, you really need to allow for several months if you're working with material that has, does not exist already. Can you describe Thread's process for helping sponsors to implement and operationalize eco-strategies? Early engagement is the key to operationalizing ECOA successfully. Mm -hmm. At Thread, the ECOA lead is part of the cross-functional team and is engaged as soon as the study is handing over a contract signature. The, the team participates in a kickoff meeting. We meet directly with customers and we'll be in, we're actively involved in the prototype design and it can be an iterative process. So we remain engaged in the process as long as it takes to get to a launch. The translations team is engaged as soon as design is fully locked down. So um, that, that early engagement is really what we look for. If Thread is facilitating the licensing process with copyright holders, we engage immediately with the author uh, upon project kickoff. Another key point is we're responsible for building and maintaining any co-library. Uh, when we're not engaged directly with a sponsor study, the team is usually engaged in library curation activities, documenting, building, validating. And, and the whole purpose behind that is to get your launch to happen more quickly and more efficiently by drawing on material that already exists. And I'd say last, we've worked with our business development colleagues on what ECOA is and what are the right questions to ask and when, when they're engaged in our sales process. We try to get our sponsors thinking about their strategy much earlier than it is traditionally done. What are those questions that you would like sponsors to be asking earlier in the eco process that cut down on time and cost? One of the first questions I will always ask is, what is your submission strategy for regulatory submission? What's your priority in terms of countries and languages that you need to deploy? It's a really basic fundamental thing that may, may seem pretty innocuous, but when you're talking about really tight timelines, we need that information right away. Why is right now the right time to be having this conversation? What's happening in the broader industry landscape that makes this a priority? There's been a lot of focus from the regulators, specifically around the FDA and even the EMA across the world. But when we say focus on the FDA, since the 21st Century Cures Act, the FDA has been posting lots of guidance notes regarding how to think about your COA strategies, your implementation of your COA across the board, in there. And looking at the patient-focused drug development guidelines that have just come out from the FDA, I mean, the third or the fourth one has just gone out there, that is looking at now providing a framework of what the FDA will be potentially expecting in the future with regards to supporting the ECOA strategy that you've defined for that particular study. So we need to look at that. So we need to focus on that. So actually, the regulatory landscape is fundamentally changing. It is asking the questions 
that we've been talking about earlier on is like, is your ECOA strategy patient focus? Is it addressing the patient issue? That's the first thing. I mean, fundamentally, there's that shift there that the regulators are asking those questions across what in there. So aside from the, the guidances, we also are seeing, as I said, I mentioned earlier, the growing use of ECOA data in the form of patient report outcomes to support labor claims. And that means we must start to assess whether we are defining the right ECOA, we are capturing the right endpoints, answering the right questions to support those submissions and actually get the data we're collecting in those labelling claims. But also, the other side is, well, there's a growing industry focus on rare disease. And when we look at that, we also need to address how we think about we utilise ECOA in that particular rare disease market. I mean, the challenges of rare disease are many. The ECOAs we currently use have obviously been developed for larger patient populations. That's historically across the board in there. They're larger patient populations. That's how the scoring, the sensitivity has been determined. It's expecting a, from a statistical term, and then of a very large number. And if you said, if you do that, it's reproducible, expected it globally. In rare disease, you don't have those large number of patients. So there's always going to be the question, if I'm putting in an ECOA into a rare disease population, which has, by its very nature, a smaller patient population, am I going to see any signals? Because the population numbers are so small, because those ECOA haven't necessarily been devised and designed with smaller patient populations in place. The other fact that comes into play is, well, I mentioned earlier that there is a lack of specifically therapy area specific ECOA, but in rare disease, there's 7,000 plus different types of rare disease. A lot of these are genetic origin, they're in pediatric patient populations. And the full knowledge or clinical knowledge of rare disease is not known. So as such, how do you know what ECOA you're going to put into place in there? So this is one of the challenges. As we the industry goes into rare disease, it needs to really start thinking about, hey, what are we going to do from the ECOA strategy here? How are we going to make sure we are measuring the right things for patients? So it all goes back to the whole point about designing studies correctly with patients in mind and understanding and selecting the right ECOA. So the rare disease piece and the regulatory piece, that is now coming on board now the, the regulatory piece is draft guidance but that will soon happen and so now is almost like the perfect time to do that reset button to be in a strong position that if this guidance is going to become finalized we're in a position there to actually start moving on with our studies without having to we're being proactive by the reactive you mentioned that certain ECOAs are not fit for a smaller population in that case what is done and how much time does that take? When you're trying to think about your co strategy and one doesn't exist, what do you actually do? And now this is where patient-centered outcomes research comes into play here. And it's, again, this needs to be thought about very early on. This is at the point where you decide defining your clinical outcome assessment strategy. You need to do that research to say, what exists? What can be used? And is it valid? And actually take that in front of patients. This is what patient-centered outcomes research does. It actually tries to formulate what is a, what is available. Is it fit for purpose? Because it's then involved interviewing patients, getting patients involved in there, getting key opinion leaders involved there, advocacy groups, as well to feed into that strategy, to look at the questionnaire sets we're thinking of putting in front of the patient population and actually see if that actually does address their needs. And it may well be that, yes, some things can be used and they are fit for purpose to be moved into that. It may well be that there are some existing measures and it has been shown before from the classical I say the more traditional eco strategies that maybe something that's used in one therapy area can actually be then be utilized in a newer therapy area across the board in there that could work in transition there but then it may be that what maybe that an existing questionnaire can be used but we actually need to look at some maybe some additional items um there's examples of across the board in there where the 
when we look for spinal muscular atrophy, when we look at the standard scales in the air, that actually by understanding chapter patients, we're just asking some additional questions which are addressing the needs of that particular patient population. Fundamentally, it could even be that one doesn't exist. And actually then you have to then think about, okay, I'm going to define upfront a brand new COA. Now, from timeline perspective, that can be broad. Um, it's not something you do now and get it in the start. It's something that you have to do. And it's, this is what something you would do. You define, do the work up front, and you'd actually run it in parallel to your, one of your existing studies as you're going through the phases, addressing that point in time to actually then identify, are you sensitive enough? Are you defining clinical validity? You're allowing to chop and change. So actually, it's almost like software, but you are developing the COA as you're going through the drug development process to say, okay, in the next raft of studies, once I've got this approved, I've seen the sensitivity, that can now be my primary COA in the next batch of studies in there. But again, it's, it is a long process. It's not something you can do overnight. You have to it's about thinking and planning. And this is where it comes down to its key. And it's investing up front to ensure that you've got the right tools in place to actually measure that, get that sensitivity to support the regulatory claims at the output. And I would add, once you've got that color, you're developing something new. Think about how that would be implemented in an electronic way. There are design factors that translate better into an ECOA environment than others. So I'll, I'll go back to engaging early with your ECOA provider, consult, and try to determine whether you're going down a road that's going to be easily facilitated in an electronic environment. Can you expand on what you mean by easily facilitated in an electronic environment? Uh, when you start getting into uh, some crazy formatting or some sophisticated uh, logic that you need to follow in order to move through the instrument, there can be some challenges in the design and implementation of the COA. Do you have an example of how early planning possibly prevented a delay later on? Well, you know, I worked with a, uh, a sponsor and a CRO this year, um, well engaged. We made sure that things were well-defined. Uh, we were very clear with roles and responsibilities. So we, we knew um, who was responsible for what and what the timelines were. And we made sure we worked really smart to ensure that we were working within their timelines. When, when, uh, when there were critical path items, we watched and managed those timelines with them really carefully. And they were very fully engaged. Some sponsors are more engaged than others in the process. And when they changed, had a, they changed their mind, they wanted to do something different, uh, change in scope, we re-strategized and were able to pivot in an organized and planful way so that um, we, we took advantage of every day that we had and we wound up having a, a, a really successful experience. It was a good experience for them and we launched on time and met all of our goals. And we're always looking at lessons learned. Each launch that we do gives us an opportunity to improve for the next launch. And so when we move into the next project, we take that learning with us. 
Yeah, and the example I've got is actually fits into that is more from a upfront when they're defining the the code strategy. So the the code they wanted to use was really defined. They'd actually said we need to use these particular measures set across the board, didn't they? And what we did there was we actually worked with the sponsor and tried to say, okay, that's your code you want to use. Let's make sure. You know, Rebecca pointed out front, just because you select the code doesn't mean you can globally implement it. And now the subtleties in that is do the translations exist as such across the board. And we wanted to, they wanted to ensure that knew this because it was in fair disease as well. They wanted to make sure that it was inclusive. So the first thing we did was we said, right, you're using Zikoa. What's your country mix? What countries are you going into? And from an inclusive perspective, they said, well, what languages? These are the key languages you should be focusing on there. So that's the first passage out. We identified the countries and the languages, and then we just then matched the Zikoa available translations to see what they wanted. And from that, we asked him and said, you know what, these translations don't exist. We're going, if you want to include these countries, we're going to have to do as what we said previously regarding, we're going to get, have to get that linguistic validation done. So that helped them to refine that country mix, that, that translation piece down to actually give them more targeted approach when they were coming to us with, with the full study. The other things we looked at as well is actually just certain questions they should be asking the ECOA licensor when it comes to how it could be implemented at course board. So we're trying to work with, and it's working with the Rebecca's team is actually how to bring it into say, when it comes to the licensing and the contracting, ask these questions, get this agreed up front. So actually when it comes to us, we've got the materials in front of us to make it easier to present to one, the licensee and to the translation providers to ensure that we've got, we can get those materials. So this is a sample of actually just effectively working with the vendor to plan up front to actually means that when it becomes an becomes an operational deliverable, we're actually able to take the ground running. We're not, it's not stop starting. What would you advise our listeners who are planning, designing, and implementing trials to do in order to avoid surprise costs or delays in the implementation of ECOAs? From my perspective, I'd say is to engage. Don't make any assumptions because never assume anything because when you make assumptions, that's where the gotchas come into play. So it's actually thinking and planning through and just mapping through what you're planning to do and actually is actually it's achievable across the board in there. And actually that's working with your vendor or your outcomes agencies such across the board to get the steer to be going in the right direction. So actually and you're primed for success. And so it's early engagement, but just have that it's conversation. And have that conversation, don't work in a silo and in isolation. And just from a very practical standpoint, I would say with your ECOA content do your research and begin the licensing process as fast as possible. They, some licenses could take upwards of four to five months once you do an author review. Don't let that timeline hold you up from your implementation um, and start your translations as soon as possible and allow for enough time for linguistic validation if it's going to, to be needed. You want to avoid rework at any cost because the minute, you know, if your design is not really solid upfront, once that build starts, you're, you're going to wind up incurring um, extra, extra time, extra cost, and you're, you're putting your launch really at risk. Thank you so much, Rebecca and Chris, for taking the time to share your expertise surrounding patient-centric ECOA strategy. 
For more information on PharmaTalk Radio podcasts, you can visit theconferenceforum.org. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.